Hello again and welcome back to the Quantum Podcast, people of the internet. My name is Ethan Morland and I aim to speak to high performers and high performance practitioners about the hows and the whys behind what they do, break it down with them and create easy to understand lessons for you listeners. So in recent weeks, I hope you've all enjoyed the array of guests that I've had on, you know, from having Olympians and more recently he's become a world champion in Hugh Nightingale, police officers, strength coaches, all sorts and that's sort of what I'm going for with this is just to speak to people from all walks of life and provide different stories um you, you know from ranging from sort of PTSD to high performance sport to um sleep coaches to literally anything so if you have any suggestions of guests you'd like to see on the podcast then let me know in the comments or email me which you can find on Spotify YouTube, Instagram, wherever, DM me. But on today's episode of the podcast, I have on another police officer and prison officer, Jack Mason. So Jack, I came into contact with because he shared one of my TikTok videos, which was from the episode with Ben Pearson, where he talks about the job that broke him. And I had a look through Jack's TikTok, and he's a very interesting lad, provides really great insights into life as a prison officer, life as a police officer, how things work behind the scenes that we may not see as the general public. So in this episode, we get into the prison officer side of things. So we talk about the corruption within the prison system, how you get a job within the prison system, what the shifts are like, the interactions with prisoners, how you hold yourself, the things you learn as a prison officer, the horrible scenarios he's been in, the, you know, all these different things to do with the prison system, anything I could think of asking him, I asked him. And he was a really open, uh, really open book, and it was just a great episode to film. This is going to be part one of a two-part series where I talked with Jack because I had him back on to talk about his time as a, pr- a police officer as well. So watch out for that one in the coming weeks, and I hope you enjoy the episode with Jack. Thank you. The, re- the reason we sort of came to do this podcast was because you shared one of my videos on TikTok. And I came across your content, had a look at it, and I thought it was really interesting the way you were giving insights into the police and the police force. And also it came because a comment on that video that you shared, the one of Ben Pearson, where the job that broke him, someone commented saying, point of view, when you're told to do your job, which obviously got a lot of heat from a, f- a few people. And it hit with me, it hit with me because I was like, these guys have no idea what these people go for on a daily basis. And I wanted to bring someone on who has not only been in the police, policing system, but the prison system as well, because there's obviously that side of it. So do you just want to give an overview of what your background is and how, how your career has come to be so far? Yeah, of course. So um, I guess I'll start. So I graduated uni back in 2015 and went into work for sort of a corporate job. Um, My dad helped me get working with sort of client management. So what I do now, um, I really didn't enjoy it at the time. Always wanted to be in the police, always wanted to go down that sort of route. Um, So I applied, got knocked back a few times and it's not unusual for the police to knock you back the first couple of times you apply, especially if you're quite young or just out of education, they sort of go, you need to live your life a little bit and have a bit of experience under your belt and then come back and see us. So I then went and looked for jobs, you know, what, what can get me that sort of experience of working in that area? Um, and how can I build my sort of 
resilience to it and see whether I'd work well in it. And my dad mentioned the prison service were hiring, so I, I went and applied there. Um, it was in the middle of a big recruitment drive for them. So um, ended up working there for, for two years, um, at a prison just outside London. Um, and then went back and applied for the police through a graduate scheme they run called Police Now. Um, and obviously had enough experience that they thought that would be a, that'd be a good. So then moved from the prison service into the police. I was in the police for two years, which is a bone of contention for some people. Um, but I worked predominantly in neighborhood policing, um, but I touched through that a lot of different aspects of the, of the job. Um, and then sort of mid pandemic, mid lockdown, uh, my daughter was born in 2021 and I decided I wanted to not be in the police and be a dad at the same time not knocking people to do that. Um, so I got in touch with a few people from my old job before I joined the prison service. They still had roles going. I knew they were 100% remote, so I knew I'd be home all the time. Um, and then, yeah, sort of left policing behind and ended up back in the corporate world. And then after about a year there, moved into the startup where I work now. So yeah, bit of, bit of a roller coaster. Yeah, the going straight into the prison system must have been a very daunting thing because it's not you know for, you must have been what early 20s when you went into it so to go into a place like that where there's gang members you know possibly murderers what have you so what type of prison was it that you were working in so i worked in a, a category c uh, all male prison um so category c is if you're talking about the prison system if you're first arrested and sentenced to a custodial you go into a category b um, which is where everyone kind of sits and then you're usually recategorized out from there. Um, some people will stay at B and some people get moved down to C. It's all about how dangerous you'd be to the public if you escaped and what sort of means you have access to that can help you escape. So it's not all about how dangerous you are as an individual. It's about the danger you pose should you get out um, and how easy it is for you to get out. So you've got people who are like double category A prisoners who are you know, big um, gang members, cartel leaders, that kind of stuff. And they literally do have the money to fly a helicopter into the middle of a prison that will pick them up kind of thing. So that that's the category system. The guys I worked with generally had earned the right to be there. So they worked well, had good behavior in the category B system to be moved down to category C. So it wasn't by far the worst or the roughest jail that you could pick to work in. Was it? Was there more freedom in that system for prisoners, I'm guessing, at Category C? Yeah, in a way. So they, in the prison I worked in, it was a work in prison, so they kind of had their work day. So they would be, it wasn't a set, it wasn't a set up like they'd be locked away for 23 hours and allowed out for exercise and food. They were allowed out from, unlock was eight o'clock and then lock up was at seven o'clock. Um, and they'd maybe be locked up over lunchtime at the weekends. Um, but generally they'd go out, they'd work in the morning or they'd go to activities like education or, you know, if they're part of a program or anything like that, they'd go to that first thing in the morning, come back, have some lunch and then go and do the same in the afternoon. Then they'd have what's called social socialization in the evening, um, which is, is exactly what it sounds like. They just hang around and have a chat, cook dinner and all of that good stuff. And then we lock them up again. The relationship aspect of the prison system is something I, because you see on TV this, obviously TV sort of exaggerates things in certain aspects, but one thing you don't really see any of is the relationships between prison officers and the prisoners themselves. So 
how what's that like and how does it work like what are you allowed to do what you're not allowed to do it's it's hugely subjective right so depending on where you work and who you're talking to the general rule is friendly but not friends um there's a sort of mutual respect between the both of you that you're not there to judge them or make their life any more difficult and they're not there to make your life any more difficult they understand you're doing a job that's about 95 percent of the population have that opinion that you are just doing a job how they interact with you because of that so some people won't be overly friendly but they won't be overly hostile either so they'll kind of just be like get me that and it's not them being rude they just they don't have to be nice to you you can obviously try and correct them and things like that um and then you'll get some that that absolutely hate the system and everyone in it and because you wear the uniform you're part of the system there you go they don't like you um i think there's times where like your job as a prison officer especially at that level is to try and correct behavior before it becomes problematic or if it is problematic and ongoing so if someone does speak to you in a an aggressive way there's and you've got a decent relationship with them you've got the scope to go don't don't talk to me like that you know don't don't talk to people like that generally like just dial back your tone a little bit it comes across as aggressive now how they take that is, is completely up to them but generally it's just friendly but not friends keep the boundaries firm um you will have prisoners who will go above and beyond for you as in helping with new inductions on the wing they help with arrivals they help keep the wing clean and there were people that you would develop a relationship with who um would be able to get things done that you wouldn't as a as a prison officer and i don't mean that in a dodgy way i mean like could you go and find out what's wrong with this person because they won't tell me but they'll tell you and they'll happily do that usually prisoners on life sentences you don't really have much to lose and they've got a lot of respect within the prison system um so yeah there's multi multiple facets to, to that relationship so the prison system itself in the uk is very by all means in the media um, portrayed as if it's easygoing and they have a lot of access to things that people in other countries would not so from your perspective having worked in it for a few years do is it too easygoing in terms of you know when someone goes to prison and they're still allowed a playstation or a tv and all this sort of stuff do you think it is too easygoing in that sense it's, it's really hard right because to what extent are you trying to to what extent is prison a punishment because a lot of people and the most vocal people i think you'll hear in the uk are prison should be a punishment it shouldn't be a holiday camp it, it's by no means a holiday camp you know these, these guys work for nothing while they're inside so they could do a week's worth of work and then seven quid like doing full days of work and that's a well-paid job so there's that aspect all of the stuff they have access to inside they've bought so it's not you know that they'll have saved up or they'll have had you know money sent in from family or friends and they're not all like well-off guys right so that they'll have bought that i believe prison needs to be an environment where it's uncomfortable yes but purely prison is quite uncomfortable as an environment you're sharing a, you know on a wing um where i was 93 prisoners and on the landing there'd be 31 so you're sharing your space with a lot of people your space isn't big you know there's not much personalization options to it you know it's it's, it's a cell you can't really repaint it or, or do too much to it to make it your own so it's uncomfortable you're away from friends you're away from family you're surrounded by people that that could be quite violent 
um, that could be quite uh, sort of unstable in a lot of different ways. And you are told what to do by us. And as much as we are friendly, we run your, we run the sort of the system. Now, it's not to say if they didn't want it, they could take it. There's, there's a very big, there's three prison officers and 93 prisoners. You do the maths, like we're gone if they decide they want it. Um, I don't think prison is comfortable, nor do I believe it's a holiday camp. Is there a problem with drugs and phones and all of that good stuff that they shouldn't have access to? Yes, there is. But the prison system does a lot of what it can to counter that. I think you should have access to a TV. I think you should be able to know what's going on in the outside world. Um, I think if you want a games console for a bit of escapism, there's nothing wrong with that. I'd rather you play, you know, Forza or whatever than smoke up some spice or do some coke like that. That's much rather what we'd have. I don't think it's as comfortable as people make it out to be at all. It's that's interesting because the what you said at the end there were about, you know, you'd prefer someone playing on a PlayStation than smoking spice is a take I've never heard anyone say before because we just see it as, oh, they're in prison. They don't deserve luxuries because a PlayStation is a luxury because certain people on the outside can't even get a PlayStation. So do you think there's, I think I'd, in my opinion, I don't think they should have PlayStations. I think TV, yes, I think you should have, a, everyone has a right to understand what's going on in the world politically and in general. But I personally think there's a, there should be a barrier of that where it's like you can see what's going on in the outside world. You can get entertainment in terms of TV, but the ability to, you know, play games, buy all these luxury foods that they can. In my opinion, I think that's a step too far because I feel like it should be a, a way of going, you're in here for a reason and you're missing out on the luxuries for a reason. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. And it's, it's a very commonly held commonly held viewpoint so um i completely understand i think the the sort of the the luxury foods or the outside foods if you like on on canteen you know they get it once a week they might some people don't own enough to buy one packet of crisps to last them the entire week um if they if they're on any sort of like smoking therapy or anything like that they have to pay for that as well that's not something that's covered by prison you can't smoke in prison anymore you have to vape if you wanted to vape um so, you know, they have to pay for everything. PlayStation, they can't play games that are rated like 18 or explicit because, especially if you're in for a violent crime. And by all means, no, not everyone has them. There's actually quite a select few people that have them. Some people just have a DVD player and stuff and, and watch things. So, um, but again, it's about the, you need something in that environment that provides you a bit of escape and while it's a commonly held belief that yeah you're there for a punishment and you're there for um you know to sort of atone if you like for, for your sins you that will drive people crazy people do hang themselves in prison because just because of the environment not because of anything else not because of what they've done not because you know you could have guys serving 18 months on a drug sentence that's really minor they'll hang themselves because they can't handle prison. Prison is a horrible place to be. I believe if you're wanting people to serve sentences that are productive, um, you need to allow them a bit of escapism in, in that way because they need time to unwind. They're confronting what they've done. And for a lot of these guys, it's violent and it's nasty. It will traumatize them once they unlock all of that through treatment and things. They need time to come down from that in the same way that anybody else does. It's 
interesting because I think that stimulus that you're talking about should be education, should be education in terms of trade, should be education in terms of degrees, whatever that can be offered should be offered. Mm -hmm. But again, it comes down to that thing of, like you said, there's 93 prisoners and three prison officers. There's no funding. Yeah. So how, how would you even go about combating that? Because even like, you know, three guards for 93 prisoners, like you said, they can literally, they could just take you and you, it'd be over in 10 minutes if, if that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, like you kind of answered it yourself, it's funding, right? And um, whilst throughout the day, these guys, especially where I was throughout the day, these guys were in education. They are in trades, they're learning things that they can take to the outside, they're getting um, qualifications that they can then take to like tradesmen through approved programs and things. And um, a lot more companies being open to hiring um, ex-prisoners when, when they leave as well. So we're trying to help them in that in that sense. Um, it's just funding. I think that the more funding you can throw at the prison service and the public sector in general, the better things will be. The more officers you can hire to look after the prisoners, the more teachers you can hire to look after them, the more program leads and facilities you can build um, for them to learn and become productive members of society once they leave. It's just about funding. I think there has to be a change in the way we view prison as a country. I think we need to move more towards a Scandinavian view of prisons, which is they look lovely, um, but they work because they're rehabilitative. They're not focused on punitive elements. They're looking at rehabilitating someone and actually building them up as a person from, you know, they'd probably consider you broken when you arrived. They're aiming the two or three years they've got you. And if you were sentenced to two or three years, I think you'd serve two or three years, as far as I'm aware. And their job is to fix you so that when you go out, you don't come back again. And you see that in their rates. Their reoffending rate is extremely low. Um, but they get bad press in Britain for being soft and nice and cosy. It's really interesting because, like, you see on... Because they did an episode on it in the, you know, the world's toughest prisons Raphael Rowe yep. documentary it's really interesting because like you see on because they did an episode on it in the you know the world's toughest prisons Raphael Rowe documentary and it is a really interesting take because I think that the way to rehabilitate people is to educate people because what you you seem to the the, the trend in the people going to prison and reoffending is a lack of education a lack of um, job opportunities because of the lack of education and you know for say for example you have an 18 year old kid who's got done for drug running and they're now serving that 18 month sentence like you mentioned 18 months is more than enough time to go into prison and get an MVQ and come out the other side of it with something and then I guess it is up to them to make that change mm -hmm. but you I think if you're providing them with every sort of resource that you can you're minimizing that to the maximum, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And um, you, you're right. As with anything, the change has to come from them. We can only provide the facilities and, and the ability to do that. Um, we can't make them change. And it's one of the most understated challenges, I think, of the prison service is shifting these guys mindset from yeah you could make x amount from running drugs because you have to remember like when these guys don't get caught they they do make a lot of money like they're making five six hundred thousand pounds a day 
just running drugs for people. The downside is you can't put it in a bank account because it's illegal funds. And if you get caught, you're going to prison, right? So try and tell someone like that, that you can go from that to a trade where, and you know, I know the trades are very well earned, but when you're starting out, they're not, you know, you can go into apprenticeship where you're earning maybe, you know, four, six pound an hour. And, but that'll be better. That, that's, that's the conversation I had with a lot of guys and a lot of people like, especially the older generation of um, criminals self-confessed, I won't change. Um, I've been doing this too long. I don't have anything else. They would say, let me see if I rob a cash in transit van of 30 grand and I can look after my family for a little bit, I'll serve four or five years for that. So that's, there's nothing wrong with that to, to their opinion. And that's the opinions you're trying to change, but it's very, very difficult. Very difficult. Do you ever get to sit down with prisoners and just, well, when you were there and have these types of conversations, like sort of, you know, longer form conversations where you can actually get them to sort of open up with you? Because there seems to be, well, for, again, from what was perceived from the TV and the media is that there's just this solid divide between officers and prisoners and there's no breaking it whatsoever because a prisoner will be called a rat or an officer will you know be deemed like corrupt or what have you yeah and um to an extent it's, it's true right so to an extent there is a divide uh, there, there are certain lines you can't cross there are certain lines that are a little bit more blurry depending on the situation but yeah you do you do get the chance to sit down with these guys and have longer conversations in fact what might be a big part of the job is understanding why someone behaves in a certain way um, either through so they have something called the key worker system so when you're a prison officer you're given responsibility for six prisoners while you're inside and you meet with them weekly to sit down how's your progress going have you been going to all your classes what and you know you'd read their behavioral record first and then go and sit down and be like you know i heard you stood up and swore at a teacher and stormed out of the class what was going on there and they find when you were their key, I found when I was their key worker, they would open up a little bit more and they'd sort of lean in and, you know, explain, I've had some bad news, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and you get to understand, you know, you get to understand who their partners are, what their family life's like, whether they've got kids on the outside or not. You learn a lot more about them. Um, as for them being viewed as a rat, there are certain things you don't do. And I've made the mistake before. We've had some things happen on one landing and I went up to one of our trusted prisoners and I went, what happened? And he didn't say anything, he just went back into his cell and he came down about 20 minutes later after he'd calmed down apparently and said, just shut the door to the office so it's just me and him. And he said, um, I don't mean any disrespect, but don't come and ask me that in front of everyone again. He said, I wouldn't tell you, even if I did see something, just a heads up. And if you ask me again, I won't be so nice. Like, I'll chew you out basically in front of everyone. So you learn those, that there's sort of the unspoken rules. Um, and like most prisoners realize that prison officers and prisoners have that sort of, some will have a jovial relationship with each other and they'll have a chat, talk about the football, talk about whatever. Um, some don't want that, um, but they're fine with other people having it. And some see it as, no, we're prisoners, they're prison officers, but we're different people, leave them alone kind of thing. Um, but no, not unheard of for, like one of the custodial managers I worked with, if someone barricaded their cell and said, I'm not coming out. Um, he would say, come on, open the door. Let's have a, let's have a smoke. This is when you could still smoke in prison. So let's open the door. Let's have a smoke and let's have a talk. And that more often than not would get you a lot further than 
you know, okay, well, we're just going to reverse the door and come in and, you know, restrain you or whatever. Um, yeah, I think it's different strokes of different folks, how you choose to approach things like that. But you do get to sit down and talk with them, yeah. Is there a lot of corruption within the prison system? Yeah. Yeah, massively. Um, huge problem. Like all of the drugs and phones, I think the statistic is something stupid, like 80% of it is carried in through staff. And that's wow. staff. I won't say all of them are doing it for personal gain. I think some have been coerced. Um, I think some have been threatened. Um, I think some are that desperate that it's not really financial gain. They just have a lot of financial issues. Um, and you know, the, the money these guys will pay you is insane. You know, one of the officers I worked with was arrested and had been carrying stuff in for quite some time. Um, and they were estimating how much he'd made and it was, it was a good, you know, high five figure sum over sort of six to eight months. So it's a lot of money in a short term. Um, but you know, once, once you've done it, you can't go back kind of thing. You, you can never turn around and say, no, I'm done now. Cause they've got you. Cause they'll just say, well, we'll report you cause they don't care what's going to happen to them. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. That's absolutely insane like and because as well i guess if you are going through financial difficulties it's you probably can't see through it you just see it like they're throwing oh well you know you bring this one phone in we'll we'll pay you 10 grand mm -hmm. and, and if you've like, got a 10, 10 grand, grand off, if you've got a 10 grand credit card debt. sat there that's gone it's not an issue anymore the is it, have you ever seen a situation where in terms of, you know, the corruption where it's not a case of it's for the financial gain, it's for the fact that they've got something on them. Have you ever seen one of those cases? As in the, sort of the, the prisoner knows something about the officer kind of thing. Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. Um, you, you very rarely find out the motivations because the officer's arrested and then removed and you, 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 they won't come back. So you won't see them again. Um, so it's all a lot of speculation. I've, I've never seen a prisoner be able to influence something because they know something um, about another officer. But I, I mean, there's there's kind of two sides to the corruption, right? There's there's the corruption of you being coerced or you're bringing stuff in and helping the enemy, if you like. And then um, I did a TikTok on it actually. It's the, the sort of the good side of corruption, or, or the perceived good of corruption, which is where you overly abuse the power you've been given um, to oppress the people in your care, which is not what we're about at all, but it's the people that will get into fights over nothing or like restrain someone over nothing or will be heavy handed and give out orders just because they can. That's a form of corruption that people don't talk about. And it's that is very prevalent in the prison service amongst a certain sort of group of officers um, who join and they join because they like the power, but they're just as corrupt as people who bring stuff in because they make the environment dangerous. I thought a lot of the, you know, in terms of bringing the phones and the drugs and stuff would come through family members and what have you. And to hear it, most of it comes through the offices is quite astonishing, really, because it is like, you know, they're being trusted in this job that they're doing. And obviously, we don't know what's going on in family lives. We don't know what they, someone's got on them. But it feels like the screening system, as much as there is a screening system for this kind of job, obviously isn't doing its job really is it yeah i mean that they they outsource the vetting to a third party 
So a company who does, I think, a very standard betting check on people. Don't me wrong, it looks into your finances, it looks into um, social media, looks into connections, you have to declare anything that could be considered a compromising interest or um, anything like that. Any family members ever been in trouble with the police in general, you have to declare a lot, but I think they rely a lot on honesty um, of people in that process. And people will be scared to disclose things because they won't get the job. And it's not always the case, obviously there are some things that are an immediate bar. But some things that you disclose, like a family member served time X amount of years ago, it just means you're unlike, they'll probably trace where that person was and not put you anywhere near them, kind of thing. So that there isn't even an inkling of, oh, you were such and such as, so, you know, so you avoid that. But um, yeah, I, there's some real changes that need to happen with the vetting. And I think that the same is true of the police. You're seeing it all in the news at the moment, that the vetting procedures aren't up to snuff with what's in the service so yeah i think that there's a lot that can be done there in terms of your personal experience what was some of the like the, the worst situations that you had to deal with uh, in your time as a prison officer um ironically when i put my when i put my notice in for some reason it went turbo for about a month um and people set fire to someone set fire to the segregation unit so I had to go in with the, you know, and in prison we're all taught to fight fire, by the way. It's because we can't wait for the fire service. Fire in prison spreads really quickly. Um, so we're all taught to, to fight fires. So to don the smoke hood and join a couple of other guys that were there. Wasn't there very long, but still, it's, it's a scary experience being faced with heat and smoke and all of that good stuff. Um, numerous sort of violent restraints that took place. Um, I think probably one of the, one of the, um, the, the more sort of, I won't say traumatic, but one of the things that stuck with me the most was some guy who I locked up. He was quite new and I closed his door one night and then went home and had a rest day and then came back in a couple of days ago and uh, he hanged himself that night and had no idea. So I got called to coroner's court. Uh, about a year later, we have to sit in front of the family and the coroner and explain your interactions with that person and sort of they kind of dig in to see whether you could have done anything more. So obviously, I knew I couldn't have. Um, the guy was in a good spirit when he spoke to me, so I, I no warning signs, nothing. Um, and I think that was very much the view of his family as well. So luckily, that was quite nice. But there's there's some traumatic stories from from coroner's court from other people um but yeah no i think for, for me it's probably the the violent restraint and it, it's just you're always on the adrenaline is always on and it's exhausting because anything could change like so an, an officer annoyed someone once and he then came down with a kettle full of uh, oil and was just stood on the ground floor in front of three of us and all three of us were going if he throws at us that's really gonna hurt so it was a very, very tense moment trying to de-escalate that. That's quite scary. But you come up against those, those sort of in-the-moment negotiations happen quite a lot. Um, that one, you're always wary you can get hurt when someone's got a, a weapon or something they could weaponize. You're always a bit more, a bit more careful. But nothing, I would say, out of the ordinary that other officers wouldn't experience too. Yeah. How um, did you deal? 
so for, like that that situation there that you mentioned where you you know you just went home you went to just go have a day off you come back to find the guy hung himself how do you mentally deal with those situations like do they stick with you now i think yeah it it really made me i was very confident in the fact that when someone decides to do that it's their decision whatever the external factors it is their decision to, to do that so i and you know no one on the wing had actively said go and hang yourself no no one had said that he was a well-liked guy so it was just it was confusing but it was their decision right so i never let that element of it bother me what i did do was just reflect on how i spoke to people in the future and how i looked you know when new guys came on i did make a little bit more of an effort to engage them in conversation especially if they were new into prison especially if this but you know they were young you do try a little bit harder so i think that's that's how it stays with you but in my version in a positive way it, it helped me open my eyes that actually someone might need a little bit more prompting to open up about what's going on so that's how i, yeah. I took that forward that's an interesting take because when I spoke to Ben about the same thing about how he dealt with situations, he just said it built and built and built. Like he didn't initially notice anything. Like you know, you'd see, for example, dead body, nothing, dead body, nothing. But it's piling up, and then over years and years, it just obviously it just clicked and broke with him. But in terms of obviously then dealing with that thereafter, was there enough? Do you feel like there's enough psychological? Um, help from the prison system itself for the officers who are involved in situations? Um, no. No, not at all. Um, I had stories of... I, I mean, the police is bad. Um, it's very bad. Um, but at least they will... If, if there's up to a certain point, they will get you counselling, even if it's the bare minimum that, they can, that you can get, right? Um, and you might only have two or three sessions. And things might have to get really bad for that to happen. The prison service had nothing. So you would just have to deal with... And, and that's why I felt like the camaraderie in the, in the prison service was huge, because we all connected through that. I think in terms of what you're saying and what Ben said about it building up, in the, in the prison service it does. The violence and the fact that pretty much everything you say is shot back at you. You do snap at people on days. Um, and people do just go... Oh, I'm done, I'm going home today, that's it. And they would go to the governor and say, oh, I, they just say, I can't safely do my job today. I'm going home because otherwise I'm going to do something silly. Um, that's going to get me or someone else hurt. So I'm just going to go home, take the day off. Governors mostly would be quite understanding if you had a good, good team, but there's not a lot of support, you know, in the same breath, I had a, a mate who cut someone down and then had to sit with him on the constant observation that you have to do after someone does that. So my mate had no time to do, and he said, can I just have like 15 minutes to just decompress and get over what I've seen? And they were like, no, no time, off you go. So yeah, there, there's no support, no support. And it get, I guess like in terms of that way, you say your friends, you know, cut someone down. That's just the look of the draw as well. Like you were probably quite lucky in terms of you've not had to do that. Whereas he probably has that, thought not obviously come up often but it probably comes up it, all of it's lack of the draw so you know the violent restraints you don't know if you're going to get an exceptionally violent person you don't know 
when you go to search someone's cell, whether they're going to turn on you. That happened to two colleagues of mine, uh, and the guy really turned on them, and uh, there was biting involved, and it was very nasty. Um, you don't know that's that's going to happen. So it's completely luck of the draw. One in that situation, and two, how that prisoner's going to react on that day, because they might have been fine the day before. I had so many prisoners that you would be fine with you until you wanted to search their cell, or until you wanted to search them, or until you had to tell them bad news, or until you had to tell them they couldn't have something, and they would flip. And it, it's just, is it going to be you? And I think that's the biggest thing going through the gate as a prison officer, is, is always that little bit at the back of your head going, is, is it going to be me today? Who gets punched, gets kicked, gets bitten, whatever. Is it, so... You know, like you said there, that you could go to the governor and be like, look, I'm not in a fit state to work today. I'll do something bad. Did you find it easy or did you find it hard to, for example, if something's happened at work or something's happened at home and you're walking in or out the gate, did you find it hard to disassociate what had, for example, happened in work and then go home and, you know, act like everything's fine? It's, it's really hard, um, but I think the prison service, uh, it's almost like a ritual of when you arrive, because you have to be, you go through an airlocked gate, all of your phone and stuff goes into a locker, and then all of your equipment comes out. I think a lot of prison officers get really good uh, when they put their stuff in that locker. That's all of their stuff. That's their stuff that's going on at home, their stuff that's going on outside. Because if, if it was really bad, as in a bereavement or you know, a, a divorce, whatever that, that had happened, you know, you could, you wouldn't go to work. You'd go to the governor and say, here's what's happened. Or they put you on lighter duties away from prisoner facing stuff. But a lot of people get really good. At, if, if you've had a fight with your partner, it goes on hold. And by the time you come out for lunch or you break or you finish your shift, you've probably calmed down enough or you've done something on shift or it's just occurred to you that you're in a much, you're in a little bit of a better place to deal with it. It's a lot harder coming home from a shift and shifting back into home life. Like I, I had a day where I had two or three restraints in one day, so it was this peak and drop of adrenaline three or four times, and it took me a long time to calm down. I lived quite close to where I worked as well. Some prison officers like to live 45 minutes away because they've got a whole drive home. To talk about it, I live less than 10, so it was really hard to come down from that let the adrenaline subside and um sort of switch back into into home life um, and there would usually be i'd be a lot more irritable a bit more snappy um, but when you're going into work it's more important to leave it behind because you need to be focused on what what's going on there rather than distracted by something else it's hard because you you know you you always switching off what's gone on outside in the outside world when you're going into work but if you like you said if you've had four adrenaline peaks in a day elite athletes have one and it takes them days to recover having four or five and then you're expected to go to work the next day is absolutely insane but it's just oh it's completely overlooked and then obviously you're going home you probably you might it might cause an argument with a loved one and then that causes issues and then you've got to then go to work the next day on an argument that happened as a result of the day before at work it's just insane it's yeah it, and it's one of those things 
it, it's not covered in training. You're not taught how to deal with that side of things. I, I feel like the police preps you a little bit more for the traumatic side of the job. So the death, and uh, when I say preps you a little bit more, I just mean they tell you it's going to happen. You know, that you're going to go to jobs where people will have died. You're going to see dead bodies. You're going to see um, injuries. You're going to see nasty stuff in this job and the police don't make a secret of it. I think the prison service focus during the training more on you being a good officer. So you go in with this idea of I'm going to do all these things. And if I do this, then I'll be good. And if I do this, I won't be so good. So you have that clear distinction. But then when something nasty happens, like when someone gets really badly beaten up and there's blood everywhere, it might be the first time you've seen that amount of blood in a cell. You, you've got no idea what that's going to do to you or how you're going to react. Um, if you're getting into a, you know, the first time someone um, sort of, I won't say they went to punch me, but they did that sort of flinch thing where they sort of pull their hand back and do that. And it looked really cool, right? Because I just didn't move, but it was, I'd frozen because normally what you do if someone did that, you jump on them, right? And the first time for a lot of people, if they'd come from a background like me, corporate, never done anything dangerous or violent, had quite a comfortable life up until then, um, that's probably how most people will react, even if you've been trained to react differently. The first time it's, it, you confront it, it's very different. But it's, yeah, going back to the whole the support thing, it's different. And the compartmentalisation of catch up with you, so you do need to decompress, which is why you go out with your prison officer mates, because they understand what's going on. You, you have a chat and you develop, like I'm still really good friends with two of my mates from the prison service, um, and we still that they're both in various police forces now and um, we still meet up and talk about what we did back then so you know it's an ongoing thing it's okay i guess that's kind of the the help you weren't getting then the being able to speak to colleagues about what's been going on because obviously you can't go home to family because they're not going to understand it you know if you go home and say someone tried to you know someone threatened to throw oil on me that no, I like I can't comprehend how I would like. You can't even think about how would I actually react if someone tried to do that to me. Yeah, it's um, but, it, it's, it's it's interesting. And there were certain generation, older generations of prison officers who've been doing it twenty five, thirty years. Some were really good at managing that, and they would say, "Yeah, that you know that happens," and they'd give you their strategies for coping with it. And the ones who'd lasted quite a while in the job generally had a good way of dealing with it. Um, and would know what to ask and would know how you were feeling. You, you've got the older generation who are like, don't know why you're in this job, it's terrible, but they've been there for 25 years kind of thing. Um, speaking to people who understand is good. My partner was always really understanding. Um, she's fantastic. Sort of both those prison and the police that I've done, she's, she's been really, really good at trying to understand or at least just being an ear that I can vent to. Um, but it is important to speak to people who fully understand, you, you know, because there's abbreviations, there's slang, there's stuff that if you're talking to someone who's outside of that, you have to define all of that. You have to pause your story and, and help them understand what you're doing. Um, whereas with a colleague, you can just word vomit everything out and, and it'll make you feel better. What are some of the benefits that have come from working in the prison system? I can talk to anybody literally anybody at any time um and that's you know it's a big selling point when i went into the police it was a really big selling point with some of our more habitual offenders because i had an understanding of what prison was like and they've been in prison 
it allows you to talk. You, you have to change your tone from speaking with um, like a prisoner to then suddenly speaking to your number one governor who runs the prison. You're going to speak to those two people very differently. And then you're going to speak to one of the heads of function governors who you might be a bit more uh, pally with, um, but you're still going to have to have an air of formality. Uh, there were some governors that really loved formality. There were some that didn't really care whether you called them governor such and such or whether you called him Dave like you know it, it's all it's all good so you learn that um, I think you learn that in that environment the way you present yourself so iron shirt nice tie clean boots is very important because you present kind of what you want the guys to see so you want them to take pride in their appearance as well so if you take pride in yours I'm not saying they will but it's sort of that's important and I think most importantly you just learn not to judge before you have all of the information before you understand you know you wouldn't look at someone's sort of what they've done or why they were in prison before you got to know them as a person because you don't want it to color your judgment of who you're going to be working with and there were some guys who were in our prison who'd done horrific things but get to know them we got to know them first so that we could deal with them and we had that relationship so when we learned that bit of information it was just sort of you have to put it to one side um but yeah talking to anybody you know take take pride in your appearance you know dress dress how you want to how you want to feel and how you want to appear especially in areas where you wear like smart clothes or a uniform because other people will pick up on it um and yeah just don't judge you learn to listen you learn you learn when to listen when to talk you learn how to manage someone who's in a really high emotional state so it's at that point it's not about you it's about them don't make it about you as much as you want to try and relate and you want to tell your own story bring it back to them just let them talk about what they're, they're feeling that's the largest bit and, and you can't learn that in any other environment i think other than in the emergency services where you're dealing with that level of instability every day you, you have to learn you just learn about people Sort of ultimately um i i understand that you're obviously strapped for time now so i kind of the way i want to do this if you wouldn't mind would you mind coming back on at a later date because we we've literally touched on the prison service and there's so much more <laughs> to you and like yeah i'd love to get you back on if you could come back on in the future yeah of course absolutely happy to so i'll ask you one final question before you go Working in the prison system, seeing some of the stuff that you saw, did it make you miss the corporate work that you were doing previously? Hmm. At, at the time, no. Um, now that I'm back doing that sort of work, I always, my, my caveat to the prison service is I loved it. I'd never go back. That's, that's the sort of the way I viewed it. When I was there, it was a very specific point in time. I worked with great people at a great place. Even the prisoners I worked with were, were ultimately quite good people and quite a good laugh to be around made our life quite easy I would never go back to, to doing that not from where I am but at the time I kissed the corporate world goodbye and that was that it was, it was a very happy divorce from that life into this new one so yeah it was all good yeah yeah it seems like it's 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 I feel like it's on the same level as like the police the army the navy what have you it's once you've been there you've done it you've worn the t-shirt you're done with it like that's no one wants to go back that's it you, you kind of you got your stories that 
you know, and it's an interesting tidbit to tell people at parties. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's all it's going to be from now on. And I'm happy with that. Like, I'm proud of the fact that I did it. Um, and it taught me a lot about myself as well. You can't pretend to be someone else in the prison because they'll find out if you're pretending very quickly. So you have to be yourself. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't miss it now. Yeah. Well, mate, I've absolutely loved this. And I usually end on one question that I ask every guest, but if you're going to come back on, I'll ask you in the next one. Yeah, sounds so good. So I, I really appreciate your time. Um, tell everyone where they can find you because your TikTok is amazing, in my opinion. The detail that you give in your answers is incredible. So just let everyone know where they can find you. Yeah, so um, on TikTok, it's uh, at Jack mason underscore 94 god i'm gonna have to check that's really bad i don't know my own tiktok <laughs> handle isn't it? Uh, it would be jack underscore mason 94 um on tiktok okay. uh, i'm planning on branching out into instagram because we don't know whether the government are going to ban tiktok or whatever um but yeah go and have a look ask some questions happy to answer thank you mate really appreciate it no, thank you for having me on really really fun so I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jack Mason. It was a really, really good one because he gives so many good insights into the prison system, the corruption, lack of funding, lack of support, all these different things. And I hope that there's a lot of takeaways from this. And if you've got any more questions, then feel free to head over to Jack's TikTok where he will happily answer any of your questions. Find his link in the description below. Make sure to follow the podcast, like, subscribe, all the rest of it and share with anyone who may be interested because that's the only way that this podcast can grow. So I appreciate everyone that's getting on board with it. We're growing week on week and it's a really, really good thing that's going on. So I hope to keep it up in the future. So thank you all for listening and I'll see you next week for another episode.